If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're doing church life, and it's part one. I took on way too much this week. This sermon was huge, so I had to split it up. We're doing part two next week, so you got to come back. 1 Thessalonians 5, we are talking about church life. And I'm going to tell you, as I thought about and prayed about and meditated and studied about this, I felt guilt. I did, I did, I did, because I realized in this text, and we're only looking at four verses, folks, in these four verses, I was humbled and I realized that I have not been doing my part. And I hope you feel the same. Not that I want to make you feel bad, but at the same time, I want us to examine ourselves in this church life because the perception of it is crazy how people come in and look at the church and how we conduct our lives in it. So if you're there, I'm going to tell you we're going to start at a jumping off point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at 11. This is where we ended last week. But this is our jumping off point. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, this is the platform we are going to dive off to, off of, excuse me, into our text. This is the mutual edification of believers within a church. So, to start this, since we jumped off this platform of encouragement and building each other up, look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 5. 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves." So in church life, let's talk first about church leadership because you know what? Church starts with those who are placed in the position to lead. You cannot get around this. Look at any great corporation, nonprofit, any business. Look at a sports team. Somebody has to emerge. Somebody has to be placed in the leadership position. So Paul is directing the believers in Thessalonica to respect the church leadership. Now, it is difficult for us to identify which leadership positions existed, okay, in this church. And again, we do not know how much time Paul had in this city to institute a leadership structure before he had to depart so abruptly. If you remember, that mob was formed, wicked men drove him out. So, We do have this. We do know from other letters that Paul did establish both formal and informal roles of leadership in other communities. Two of the more formal ones are elders, are also known as overseers. The other one, of course, in the formal is deacons. And in the informal, there were other men and women who Paul relied on to lead, co-workers who labored side by side with Paul in the work of the gospel. Our church follows Scripture in this. We have a board of elders, we have a board of deacons, and then we have all of the informal leaders in our church, department heads, if you will. Now, Three responsibilities are depicted in the roles of the leaders. We have three. 
I know there's more, but we have three here. To labor among you, uh, to be over you in the Lord, and to admonish you. Now, notice that all three involve you. All three involve the congregation, that is, the membership. Now, Paul labored in ministry for the church in Thessalonica, just as his fellow co-workers labored in ministry. Uh, We have leaders in this church that work diligently. They, too, labor for you, okay? And the spiritual task of leadership, folks, this is a tough and difficult task to take on. It really is. Now, what about those leaders besides in that position, um, the ones that are over you? Let me explain that. Over you in the Lord, that's to take charge of or to lead in management and in authority. So, it's likened to this. It's likened to uh, uh, one who manages his household. He is devoted to those he's managing. He cares for those. Therefore, he's managing that family. He offers help to that family when needed. Now, if you take that illustration, leaders are called to manage the church with the same care and attention that they give to their families. That's over you. And then to admonish you. Well, admonishing you, this is the provision of instructions. All leaders in this church should be providing instruction. This is providing counsel. We all need that. So as we put these three roles together in identifying a leader, we have one who works, and this is what it really conveys. We have one who works diligently at managing and instructing the church. Don't you need people to willingly manage and, and, and instruct and to work diligently? Absolutely. That's what a leader is called to. And in response, in response to leaders, Paul is instructing the congregation to respect them and to esteem them very highly. Because of what? Because of what? It's only because of their work. There are leaders that shouldn't be esteemed. You know it. You've met them, I'm sure. It's because of their work. And esteem, folks, it ought to flow ought to flow from a love for leaders as people recognize the tasks that they perform, the labors that they perform. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. It's just interesting now. He's talking to the brothers, and if you don't know this, we're talking about the congregation. He's talking to leaders. Be at peace among yourselves. That simple sentence is a biggie. It's a biggie, especially for the church today. Not this one in particular, but the church universal. He says, be at peace among yourselves. There's two sides to this coin. But first, let me say something. If leadership is to be effective, and if membership is to benefit from said leadership, guess what? Peace must be in place. Have you ever been in a situation where peace was removed? Chaos, disorder, absolutely. What Paul is saying is peace has to be in place for this to work if we are to be a true biblical church. Now, I said two sides to the coin. Let's just talk about the first side. Members could, can, and have undermined leadership. Let's face it. 
They can undermine leadership, which can cause problems within the church. But if you flip the coin over, you can have bad leadership that hurts members, bad leadership that hurts the church, right? The wrong person in the right position. (laughs) It can be damaging. So what happens? Well, no matter which side of the coin you land on, we have fighting, which will lead to dissension, which leads to ultimately, ultimately division. And division is what's terrifying for a church. This is what takes place when our attitudes and our actions towards our leaders are not right. This is what takes place when our leaders' attitudes and actions towards our members are not right. So Paul is, in in this admonition to the church, he is urging the church to be at peace, which means church be unified be unified, seek mutual harmony, be unified and focused in Christ. Let me read Philippians 2 too. He says, complete my joy. I love that. Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, meaning we are on the same team. A lot of churches you can look at and you can say, wow, they're not on the same team. We are on the same team. Our church body is called to be like-minded in what we believe and in our purpose to glorify God. We're called to that. Um, We're called to express mutual love for one another. We're called to that. We're called for our intent, our intention to be one in heart and mind. The best illustration I can come up with is a football team. When you look at the, let's just look at the offense. If the quarterback calls the team together in that huddle and he's calling a play, everybody hears the play. But as soon as they break, the quarterback notices, well, they're not going to their spot. They're turned differently. The way, something's not right here. All of a sudden, the center snaps the ball, it's in the quarterback's hands. Half of his offensive line sits down, the other half walks off the field. His running backs take off to the opposite end zone. His receivers, they're running routes that, I don't get this. That's not what we called. He's left holding the ball. He can't hand it to anybody. He can't throw it to anybody. And the whole point was to be like-minded in purpose, to move the ball forward, continually to move it forward until they reach the end zone and put points on that board. But that's not going to happen because they're all stopped in the tracks because there's disorder and chaos That's what I liken a church to. And I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of churches that operate just like that. And I know that's an extreme, crazy illustration. But there are churches that operate just like that. When members and leaders are at odds, if they're not being obedient to this passage, guess what happens? Peace is disrupted. And worse, peace is removed. And we are called to maintain peace. So it's rare to find a church whose congregation, I know this is going to hurt, but even in America, it's rare to find a church whose congregation and its leaders are living out this passage in mutual love and harmony. While the instructions are straightforward, the instructions are straightforward, it is unfortunately rare, and this is a reminder for all of us to examine how we conduct our church lives. So it starts there in church life. There is leadership. Leadership is always pulled for membership, and this is where I want to go next. 
we're going to talk about the congregation in church life. Because as I go on, you are all going to notice that we are together in this. We're not separate. We are together in this. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, if you remember in the beginning of this text, it talked about brothers esteeming those that, that are over them, the leaders. The same brothers we're talking about right now, we're still talking to the membership, the congregation. This is to you. Pastors, elders, deacons, etc. We cannot do this work alone. I'm going to tell you, I cannot do this work alone. Yes, leaders have a duty to labor, manage, and instruct the idle, the encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, but is this kind of work? This kind of work takes all of us, and we are called to this. This is not my plea for help. This is Scripture telling us that it takes all of us. Believers in leadership, they are members along with the congregation of the church. Together, we are the membership. In fact, I can look out right now and I see past leaders of this church. I can see past leaders. I can look right now and I can see present leaders of this church. And guess what? I also can see the future leaders, the ones tomorrow that are going to step into this position, that are being groomed and equipped, that are being trained right now. We have leaders that are going to step in and fill the positions of those that are presently leading. Leaders come from membership. So we are all in this together. And I'm going to tell you something profound, profound from the pastor to, if you're visiting here, all the way up to the pastor, every member, every person has special needs. You have special needs in this church and in the life of this church. I have special needs. Are we recognizing that every single person that makes up this body has special needs? Now, it's interesting how much I can't emphasize that this work, this great work, takes all of us. But Paul, he lists three troubled areas for us, three troubled areas. Now listen, this list is not exhaustive. We could go on and on with different, different things here, but we're going to focus on what Paul is listing. And he also tells us how we should respond to those who find themselves in one or more of these three categories. And what I'm talking about is the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Side note, side note, I believe that every one of us has spent time parked in one of these, if not all of these categories before. And perhaps you even find yourself in one of these today. Maybe you do. Admonish the idle. A lot of people push this on leadership, but do you see that it says, brothers, we urge you? It's all of us. Admonish the idle. You know who the idle are? <clears throat> Those who refuse to work. Those who are indifferent to their responsibilities to others in the church. To you. That's who we're talking about. It's like a soldier being part uh, <clears throat> of an order and they breaking rank. Okay? That's what it's like. So Paul talked about believers uh, in this text, in, in, in this letter, excuse me. He talked about believers who were waiting on Christ's return and, and those who decided to become loafers 
that's the best word I could think of, loafers living off of others, uh, becoming busybodies in other people's affairs and not being busy themselves because they were just waiting on Christ to return. So why do anything? I'll live off you. That's who Paul was talking about. But I want to bring idleness into today's church, and I want to tell you that I think idleness can come in many forms. You can be idle in your giving. You can be idle in the service to another person. You can be idle in expressing love to another. And I could go on and on here too, but you know what the point is? The point is that this behavior through instruction needs to be corrected, and guess what? We are all called to this work. We are all called to it. Let's talk about the next one. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encouragement is vital. I don't believe that we produce enough of encouragement in this church. I don't. I think we need to do better. Encouragement uh, is vital. You know who the faint-hearted are? The faint-hearted are those people who are low in spirit, those who are grieved, those who are discouraged. That's the faint-hearted. Now, for the Thessalonians, it could be those who were facing um, persecution at the time. Because in this time, that culture that surrounded them, they were faced with those that were persecuting them. So that's who Paul's talking about. But you know what else? For us, it could be even more. It could be those who are ready just to give up. You ever wanted to just give up? I have. It could be those that are, who are ready just to say, I quit. I bet you've quit in your mind a million times when you're working on a task. I ain't doing this. I quit. But you keep doing it, right? I quit. So we're talking about the faint-hearted here. Um, let me say something. If you brushed off idleness, you go, oh, Pastor Mark, I heard the idleness thing. That's not me. I'll move past that. If you brush that off, let me tell you something. <laughs> you can't brush this one off. Because I know that we have all felt faint-hearted before. If you're going to be honest with yourself today, completely honest, you will agree with me. Everyone here today needs encouragement. Is there a person here that would, does not want to be encouraged? I seriously doubt it. Everybody is looking for that. We have all experienced being faint-hearted at the verge of giving up. And again, guess what? This doesn't take one person to fix. It takes all of us to accomplish this great work. Yeah, we're admonishing the idol, and we're encouraging the faint-hearted. We're called to it and helping the weak. Helping the weak. Weakness can be defined in various contexts. I get it. Physically weak, spiritually weak, uh, emotionally weak. Maybe you're here today, and you find yourself in weakness. Paul's thinking on weakness can take on a whole range of ways in which someone can be in need. We, we understand that. Uh, he is most likely referring, this is talking about Paul, he is most likely referring to the weakened faith, and that was the level of maturity in the Lord. That's most likely what he's referring to. But I wanted to bring up other things that fall under weakness. It could be our conscience. It could be uh, those who have suffered some form of persecution, like I mentioned before. Um, it could be a health concern. It could be sickness. It could be poverty. It could be even oppression or maybe habitual sin that plagues you. It could be any of these. Regardless, we are called to help. You know who needs help? 
the weak. The weak need the strong. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that terms. You may be the strength. You may be the strong one here. The weak need the strong. They need support from other believers because they're not going to get it out there. They're going to get it in here. So let's face it. We have all been weak. Don't even try to tell me you haven't. We have all been weak. We have all needed the strength that comes from another believer. Now, whether we receive that strength, that's another story, and that's why I'm preaching on this, but we still needed it nonetheless. And this is what Christian fellowship is. Christian fellowship is strength in support. So we looked at three things here, and you know what? In just these three, three oh, excuse me, in just these three categories, which I believe we can all recognize as a reality for us, I do, you may not, I do, Paul ends with be patient with them all. Come on, Paul, you're killing me. Be patient with them all. Now this is huge, just like we talked about peace. Patience is Christian virtue. We've talked a lot about patience. Patience, oh, we are to practice it with each other. We're supposed to be patient with the idle. We're supposed to be patient with the faint-hearted, with those who are weak. Patience with everyone in our church. Do you know that patience, though, is associated with love? It is. I mean, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But even if you look at 1 Corinthians, what is love? What's the very first? Love is what? It's patient. So patience is a catalyst for unity. It is. When you're patient with another person, you are producing unity. You are creating unity, and it models God's long-suffering patience that He constantly exhibits for us. Now, let's turn the page, right? God's long-suffering patience that He exhibits for us. So patience is absolutely an attribute of God, and He expects He expects us to be patient with those who need it just as He is patient with us because, oh boy, do we need it. So patience promotes godly love for the walk in which we have been called. Have you ever thought about it like that? It promotes godly love in our walk. And this is one area where the Holy Spirit helps us greatly. If you're a believer in Christ, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and He is the one who is going to help us help our church. And one of the big things is maintaining peace and exercising patience. I tell you, if you're producing patience, if patience is being produced in you, the life of a believer, I am telling you right now, guess what happens in turn? You express love for one another. It's an automatic thing. If you're exercising patience with another, you are beginning to express love for that person, and that is a part of the walk that we have been called to. Uh, In fact, let me read Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You ready for this? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul just covered everything that we talked about, both with leaders and members. He's covering it all. So everything that we've talked about up to this point this morning, folks, is integral to church life. It's integral. But Paul's not done. He goes on on in his admonishments for the church. 
And we're about to dive much deeper into what church life looks like. We're talking about all members. We're talking about leaders and congregation who are what? Responsible for maintaining peace and exercising patience between each other. And we also see that admonishment, encouragement, and help is part of the church life. It's all of us involved in this. This is what separates us from the world, this kind of involvement. Look at verse 15. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone for e- uh, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, this is what's interesting here. Diving into church life, what it looks like, because the perception is different for most people. I'm splitting this up. We're only going to talk about this first because it's huge. It's huge. In fact, verse 15, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a tough one. It's tough for me. This verse tells us that when we receive evil, did you see where it said here, see that no one repays evil for evil? That means not if you get injured or harmed by another person. It's when you are injured or harmed by another person. You are going to be uh, paid in evil. You are going to suffer harm and injury. That's what this verse is telling us. So when we are paid in evil, you know what happens? We are to break the cycle of retribution. We are to break the cycle of vengeance by not repaying the harm that we have suffered with evil. We do not repay or revisit the offense to us with an offense. And this stems from the practice of patience and the exercising of peace that we just spoke of. And you can reverse that, the exercising of patience and the creation of peace. Peace and patience is integral to understanding how we are to live out this verse because this one hurts. It stems from patience and peace. So, for instance, in the church, what could happen? Well, it could be rejection. It could be opposition. It could be lack of appreciation. It could be flat-out disrespect. It could be more. But guess what? We are not to pay back evil with evil. We are to replace it with good. And you know what? Here's the, here's the tough part. It's not enough just to abstain in retaliation. Okay, I just won't do anything back. No, 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 no. It's not enough to restain, uh, abstain in retaliation. We are to respond in kindness, which along with love flows from our, you ready for this? Practice of patience with one another. Comes right back to it. We don't abstain We actually replace that evil with good. And that is why I'm telling you right now, this verse is tough. We are called to live out this kind of conduct even under the most trying circumstances. We are called to live in this conduct when you're dealing with the most trying people or person, which I know we have all come into contact with. But like Jesus said in Matthew 5, in verses 43 and 44, you've heard it said that it was said You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, we are to return blessing for cursing. Our nature is, no, 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 I'm going to mirror what was just done to me. I'm going to repay you in a little bit more. But the Bible says, and from Jesus himself, that's not what you do. We are returning blessing. We are returning blessing. Good. Now, we will not always have a natural connection or a natural attraction to all people. You realize that, right? But you can still 
do them good. I understand you'll have your favorites and those in the inner circle. We get it. But what I'm saying in the church universal as the whole membership, we are to do them good. And this kind of response takes effort on your part. It takes continued practice on your part. And the pursuit of good on our part is wrapped up in patience. And guess what that brings? It brings peace. It brings peace. And church life provides opportunity after opportunity in the practice of doing good to another. Galatians 6.10 says this, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is just the first part of church life. I can only do four verses today. So look at this. Looking at church life, if we see uh, the nature, the true nature of our relationships between church uh, uh, members, uh, that's leaders in congregation together, the membership, it is all about being a part of God's family. So our church family has many, many needs. Many needs. All of you have special needs. So the pastor, the leaders, guess what they can't do? They can't do it all. Absolutely, they cannot do it all. It is the responsibility of the entire church, excuse me, the entire church to provide care for our family. So as our family grows, both in number and both in activity, we have to give even more attention to peace and patience and maintaining like-mindedness and maintaining mutual love and being unified in purpose. There are so many, even right now, there are so many different personalities. So many different personalities, different opinions, different visions, uh, different, um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, interests, concerns, priorities. I mean, there are so many different things in each of us. It's a wonder how we still are meeting together after all these years. You ever thought about that? How can the church, with all those crazy people that think differently and want something different, and how can we still be meeting? Well, if I'm asked that question, it's pretty simple. I think it's simple for you to answer. Uh, the answer is because of our love for Jesus. See, our common thread is our love for Jesus, our adoration, our worship, our obedience to Him. So our goal is to be like Christ, is it not? Isn't it to be Christ-likeness, to have Christ-likeness? Well, if we're truly pursuing that, <laughs> Well, then we have to pay attention to this text because I'm going to tell you right now, church life goes far beyond entering a building, grabbing a bulletin, and planting ourselves in a pew. It's much deeper than that. Paul paints a vivid picture for us to what church life actually looks like. And you know, I'm sure many perceive church life differently. You may be in here right now and say, Mark, that is not my perception of church life. Well, what I'm going to tell you today, what was presented here in these four verses is Scripture. It's not my doing. I didn't write it, but I am preaching it because our jumping off point in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 was to what? To encourage one another and to build one another up. Well, how do we do that? How am I to encourage and build one another up? Well, if you think about it, you have to be obedient and actively pursue verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. 
We have to look at those four verses if we are going to do anything about verse 11. Do you get it? If we're going to do anything about verse 11, you know, I don't have the exact numbers because I couldn't find the data, but I'll tell you that churches are uh, suffering. In America, I'm only talking about America, churches uh, from coast to coast are suffering. Okay, more churches have closed. I know COVID was a biggie, and some churches never bounced back from COVID. But more churches have closed in the last three or four years than have opened. It's a massive difference. A lot of churches are closing the doors because they've aged out, and I don't know what that means. It means they never attracted younger families, younger generations. They aged out. When the last person passed on, went to heaven, those doors closed. A lot of churches are aging out. We are not attracting young families. We are not attracting people in general to the church. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is church life. We have got to conduct ourselves in a way where people come in here and go, my goodness, this is different. This is different from where I work. This is different from the sporting events I attend or the PTA meetings I go to. This is different. That's what church needs to be. You know, I've emphasized over and over that it takes everybody. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from. I'm not trying to push work off on you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. But it takes everybody. I have a story. There's a story about four people in the church whose names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Anybody heard this one? This awesome illustration? No? Is it going to be new to you? Oh, you've heard it? It's a good one, right? Let me tell you the story. It's about everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. The church had financial responsibilities, and everybody was asked to help. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but you know who did it? Nobody. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody where nobody did what anybody could have done. Then the church grounds needed some work, and somebody was asked to help. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but you know who did it? I just lost my place. Let me go back. Then the church grounds needed some work. This is how confusing this gets. And somebody was asked to help, but somebody got angry about that because anybody could have done it just as well. After all, it was really everybody's job. In the end, the work was given to nobody, and nobody did a fine job. On and on this went. Whenever work was to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody visited the sick. Nobody gave liberally. Nobody shared his faith. In short, nobody was a faithful member. Finally, the day came when somebody left the church and took anybody and everybody with him, and guess who was left? Nobody. That, my friends, is scary. Church life is so much more than just showing up at 1030, sitting for an hour or so. If we are truly called to encourage one another and to build one another up like the Bible tells us, then there has to be more to church life than just our attendance. There has to be. So can we just consider all that has been discussed today? Can you consider it for me? Can you take time this week and just go over and meditate on just these four verses? 12 through 15, every day. Just read over them. Take time to consider this text. I need you, and I'm telling you right now, I need you, and you need me. We need each other in our calling because church life involves all of us. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. 
says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day draws near. That day drawing near, we know what that is. That's the day of the Lord. That's the return of Christ. That's what we're anticipating looking forward to. So while we wait for that awesome day, we should be tending to the church Church family, we have quite a bit to consider, quite a bit to consider, just like the verse says, and let us consider. But know this, today's church needs everybody. At times, it may be just somebody. Other times, the church is looking just for anybody. But the threat and the reality for the church today is more times than not, it has nobody. That's terrifying. Who's going to encourage if there's nobody? Who's going to admonish? Who's going to help? All of us together are to seek peace. We're to seek peace. We're to be patient with one another for all for the welfare of Christ's body. And this is how I want to end. The church is Christ's body. And if you love Christ, if you're still meeting because of your adoration, your love, your worship, your obedience to Jesus, well, then guess what? This is how we should view this church, that we are providing care and love for Christ's body. That's how we should be viewing this. It takes everyone. So my prayer and what I'm asking, if you want to call it a plea, is consider these four verses for the rest of the week. Consider church life, even more your role, your conduct, your involvement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am grateful to you for your word because you instruct us Father, if we are heading off the path, Father, if we're moving to the left or to the right, you center us in your word. Your Holy Spirit always brings us back and centers us. And that's what I'm praying for right now, Lord. I'm praying for leadership and congregation, all members to embrace the fact that we are called to a great, great work, and that is to provide care and love for your body. Father, help us see it like that. Help us become involved. Help us to serve one another, to love one another. Let us be an encouragement to one another. We're not going to get it out in the world, God. This is where we're going to get it. But if nobody's doing it, we're in trouble. Father, lead us, convict us, direct us to this, Father. Direct us to this kind of work, to this kind of love. That's my prayer for this church today, Lord. I thank you for those who were baptized, Lord, this morning. Just bless that couple. Father God, I thank you for every member and every person here today that heard your word, Lord. And I just pray that we all consider what you have taught us today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.